56 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. Joining me once again is my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Howdy, Courtney. Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. And yourself? I'm all right. We have no more Grand Slams in the near future, so it's a little bit lower stakes show, I guess, but this is an important time for us to be collecting you know, valuable ranking points that will help our podcast get seated next year, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> sure. Why not? Let's go with that. On this show, we're going to talk about Davis Cup, which just ended, and looking forward to next year's Davis Cup as well. We're going to talk about the scandalous Thomas Drouet diaries and answer a bunch of questions about myriad topics in the game and take a number. So all sorts of fun stuff. You ready to rock, Courtney? Ready. Let's go. One of the major events that just happened and will continue to happen for the rest of the year is the Davis Cup, which had the semifinal and playoff rounds this past weekend, which saw Serbia getting past Canada, those pesky upstart Canadians, and the defending champ Czech Republic getting past Argentina Argentina, and setting up a Czech-Serbia final in Belgrade this fall. Courtney, what did you make of these results, and I guess this year in Davis Cup overall? Hmm. The results were fine. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, you do have two of the stronger Davis Cup teams making the final. And I think it'll be interesting to see kind of Team Novak go up against the Bird Roddick train. So that'll be kind of fun. Mm -hmm. And also being in Belgrade and kind of, you know, having the Czechs have to kind of win a final, you know, away from home and stuff should be fun. And seeing seeing how Burdich and Stepanek both react to the Serbian crowd. Exactly. I think that could be huge. So that'll be fun. I think in November, I think on the whole, it was a good Davis Cup year. I think that the biggest, the most important thing about the Davis Cup year was just how it sets up next year. So in other words, there weren't really that many huge results. I mean, you know, but I think that obviously Andy Murray's renewed commitment to Davis Cup kind of changes the Davis Cup landscape. I think the rise of Stanislas Wawrinka really changes the Davis Cup landscape because Switzerland is no longer like a Will Roger play or not. And if he doesn't, then it's completely pointless and Switzerland's going to lose. And so I really thought that that Wawrinka's commitment to the the Swiss Davis Cup team this past week of actually playing and, and, and helping the team stay in world group was huge just in terms of, you know, kind of tempting Roger in a lot of ways to kind of join and get back in there. Yeah, and be, maybe, you know, we can win one in 2014. It'll so, be interesting to see if, because they have a tough draw in 2014, getting a little ahead of her. Very. They, have a, they play Serbia first round, but after that, it's okay. If they manage to get past Serbia, huge if. But it would be interesting to see if Roger at this point of his career decides, you know what, maybe I'm not going to get the big prizes on my own quite as easily. I could get by with a little help from my friend for a while. Maybe he'll take that tack. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, it's, I was thinking about it a lot today as to whether or not where I would, you know, if I had to bet, would I would I bet that Roger plays Davis Cup next year? Like, as in plays the first tie. In Serbia. In Serbia. Or doesn't. And I just, I was like going, it just, I was going back and forth. I could not make up my mind because like on one hand, I'm like, it's like one huge hole in his resume to the extent that now everybody cares about Davis Cup, whether he likes it or not. He has a great opportunity now it stands playing well. He's got a strong two-man team to kind of get through the draw. It's not an easy draw. No. 
But at the same time, you know, the opportunity to like go into Novak's house and beat him, that's kind of got to be like just kind of stoke the competitive fire in a way. But at the same time, do I really want to go into Novak's house? Probably the one place where I will get booed so hard. Yeah, we talked about that before, about the one place where we thought the crowd would be actively against Roger because they're really not anywhere in the world ever. But the right. one place we could think of when we had this discussion a few, you know, dozen episodes or so ago was Belgrade. Because yep. those people, Belgrade those people will do anything. Yep. Yeah, I think that could be a fun situation. I hope he does it. I mean, but if he doesn't, I think, once again, it speaks to some of the problems with Davis Cup that have existed for so many years. Where it can be tough to take it totally seriously when so many teams are getting by on partial attendance. And, like, for example, Spain this year was not a relevant factor, not because they stopped being a great tennis country, just because they didn't send anybody their first tie and they lost, you know? Right. But I mean, but, but isn't it a huge, to me, I think that it's a, it's a, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's like a black mark or anything or like on Federer in a way. But now that back when it was kind of like, only Rafa and Novak cared about Davis Cup and Andy and Roger were like, screw that. Like, we don't really care because our our teams suck and I'm not going to, like, kill myself to go win this thing that I don't care about. I want to win slams and that's what's important to me. I kind of bought that. I was like, yeah, okay. You know, and you had, like, Delpo kind of sitting out and, and obviously Spain and France have deep teams. So, like, they don't actually have to have their number ones and number twos play all the time and whatever. Like, it kind of made sense. But now that Andy's all Mr. Team GB... Which is a very recent so, development, by the way. He didn't, very, he didn't play very earlier this year against Russia. Right, exactly. No, it's very, very recent. But now that he's like, okay, yeah, we're in world group, let's do this. Such a bandwagoner, Andy Murray. That that Andy Murray. Well, you know, nobody's, an, nobody's a bandwagon Andy Murray fan, so, you know... He has to kind of pick up the slack. You don't think there's bandwagon Andy Murray fans? No. Really? I don't, first of all, I don't even... Bandwagon him when he started winning suddenly? First of all, I don't think that there are actually Andy Murray fans. I think there are Brits. (laughs) Okay. And then whatever is the leftover, which is a very small, small percentage of tennis fandom. So you, Courtney Nguyen, proprietor of the blog 40 Deuce, are telling me there's yes. no such thing as an Andy Murray fan. Mm, we're few and far between. We, okay. So we exist. There we go. Just... Well, no, but even if I'm going to sit, honestly, if you, if I were to sit and think of like non-Brits that are my friends who are Andy Murray fans, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, genu- I'm genuinely thinking. I know one. Who? It's, a, it's someone you don't know. Her name's Laura. She lives in DC. I went to high school with her big Andy Murray fan it's in sort of the same emo way that you are that's fine but I don't know her I was saying like the people that I know just because you don't know them Corp, doesn't mean they don't exist that's not I'm not saying that I'm obviously there are non-British Andy Murray fans Ben but I think that you understand my point I don't think that there's like this huge groundswell of like even when Andy started winning like people were like because the um, the tennis fandom is so entrenched you don't you don't go from being a Federer fan and then like Andy Murray starts winning and you're like you know what no you're my new favorite player and you don't have the Rafa fans doing that. And you don't have the Novak fans doing that. You know who rejects your premise? Who? Kevin Spacey. I rest my case. As a bandwagon? He's such a bandwagoner. Yeah, but like, okay, you're pointing to one freaking person, dude. Anyway, back to whatever we were talking about. Andy Murray and the Brits horrible, next. Horrible debating, but continue. Well, I don't know what exactly we're debating there. But Andy Murray and the Brits will be taking on the Americans next in a very exciting 1776-1812 rematch where the U.S. will play host to the British team. Courtney, how do you see that one going next year? And is it? I think it's... I, I, when I saw that draw come out, I was very excited. I will tell you that much. Because it's, it's a country that I can get interested in beating. 
Okay. I mean, I think it's a really hard tie to call. It really comes down to whether or not Dan Evans can beat Sam Query. That's how I look at it. I think that if you assume that that Andy gets the two singles points, which Andy was very, like, he took great umbrage at Piers Newberry. Yeah, Piers Newberry. There uh, was some big umbrage today. Yes, there was great umbrage to this notion that Andy Murray is guaranteeing like the British Davis Cup team like two points. So, but anyways, if one were to presume, if you look at the projections, how about that? Uh-huh. And you project that Murray gets the two singles points and you assume that Isner takes out Evans, which might not happen either, but oh, that's just that, assume. That would be very surprising if Dan Evans beat John Isner. Absolutely, but I'm just saying, but okay. just projected. These are just my caveats. Before mm-hmm. people are like, how can you assume? I'm assuming. Shoot me. So Murray gets the two points. Isner beats Evans. And I have to I have to pick the Bryans over Fleming Murray. Mm-hmm. Then it comes down to Evans Query, Evans Harrison. I don't know who the, that second... Everyone uh, keeps saying Harrison for this, but actually the higher ranked person is Jack Sock. If, they want, if they're going to go strictly by ranking. Sock is about 20 point spots ahead of Harrison right yeah. now. No, yeah, no. It could be Sock. But I mean, I'm saying like Harrison, Sock, Russell, like, you know, these are all Smeechek, Ram. These are all people who are like, could step in there to the extent that that Captain Courier doesn't have confidence in Sam Query. So yeah, I mean, that's really where it comes down uh, for me. Let's see. Let's just see where people are at in February. It's a long time from now, especially as it regards Dan Evans, who's playing like the best tennis of his career right now. Who knows if he'll be able to stay on this good streak for that many more months. That's a big ask, I think, for him. And also maybe Sam Query will pull himself out of his tailspin or not. Who knows? We'll see. The other question that comes up with that tie is right as soon as it came out, I think some people started hypothesizing about the Americans possibly hosting it on clay to, even though it's their least favorite surface as a country, really, the Brits like it even less, especially Andy Murray. It's by far his worst surface. What do you make of that suggestion? Would it be amusingly trollish to do that? It would be amusingly trollish, but I think that I I generally come from the school of you back your talent, you don't try and fuck up anybody else's. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I just don't really like that as a general sports strategy. Like, you try and let's try and maximize what I'm good at, and then we go head to head and let's see how it all shakes out. And so I didn't, I don't know, I don't really respond to that. I don't think that putting Sam Query on clay is the best idea at this point. I mean, maybe maybe in February he's playing better, but, you know, there wasn't much to, to think that, that that would be a good thing. Obviously, Isner has shown that he can he can win, and obviously Query back in the day has shown that yeah. he has too. I mean, he won the Belgrade Open or whatever, Serbia Open or whatever. Here's a stat for you. Sam Query and John Isner have each made two ATP finals on clay. Andy Murray has made zero. There you go. There you go. But I just, I still, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know if I like that move. I just think it's amusingly trollish is really the only reason I would do it. Just because it's, you know, so needling and just like, we'll even beat you on clay kind of thing. I don't know. I find it amusing. Aside from all these like X's and O's sort of talks we're having at Davis Cup, Courtney, what do you feel about Davis Cup as a competition overall? Obviously, it seems like the sentiment towards it has been pretty positive lately, but is the format in need of major repairs, do you think? Well, one thing that I think one of the issues that came up today, especially once the draw was announced and, you know, it was like, oh, Britain's going to come to the States and, you know, play this tie in February. And then everybody was like, oh, that happens to be Super Bowl weekend. Yeah. And you're like, well, shit. Like, you know, like to the extent that it's something that could be promoted or, you know, not like it would be not like it would be an event that would like take over the national 
like consciousness. You know, yeah. yeah, exactly. But you know, I mean, to the extent that it's a slow uh, sports weekend, you know, you might be able to actually get some traction. But it's not going to be a slow sports weekend. It's going to be a weekend in which no one's going to really care about tennis. Yeah. And I just really get, the, and it just really put into stark reminder that like this happens to tennis all the freaking time. We have like the worst timing as a sport. Like, all of it. Like, you know, the Aussie Open is during NFL playoffs. The whatever Davis Cup is going to be during Super Bowl. You know, the U.S. Open finals on the first day of NFL and then first day of Monday Night Football. Like, it's just thing after thing and it just never works out. Yeah, the French Open is during the NBA playoffs and NHL playoffs. Wimbledon. Wimbledon is usually okay, but every other year it falls during World Cup or something. Exactly. Or every four years or or World Cup or Euro, I guess is how it works. Yeah, Euros. You look at the Miami final, the Miami final takes, or Miami in general takes place during March Madness. There's just like, and part of that is just because our sport is constantly going on. (laughs) Like, so you're just going to like have bad timing. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's, there's been discussion over the last couple of years, at least among like kind of the more seasoned writers that, that I definitely, you know, kind of tip my cap to simply because they have more historical knowledge than I do and, and stuff like that, who kind of say, you know, let's, you know, turn this into more of a two week event, you know, where all the country like put the season on pause and you play this two week Davis Cup event and maybe fuse it with Fed Cup and make it this whole country wide or country by country thing. and. Yeah. Which is interesting and would, I mean, arguably eliminate kind of all of these timing issues with all of the different rounds and stuff. But at the same time, I don't like change and I kind of like it the way that it is. I think that the only problem is when you have the schedule spread out the way that it is and that prohibits or discourages top players from playing, then Davis Cup becomes a farce. Because it become it goes from being like this elite, oh, like who's who's gonna play who for you know, like, oh, Del Potro might play like Andy Murray in like the semifinals of Davis Cup or whatever, quarterfinals of Davis Cup. And that's pretty cool until like both of them are like, nah, I'm not gonna play it because I'm tired. Yeah. And then you're like, Well, then this is dumb. Yeah, pretty much. I, I would agree with all that. I think that Davis Cup definitely needs to be condensed in several ways. First of all, I think it should be an odd years only competition, much like Ryder Cup, I believe is every other year. Just it becomes devalued at some point. Like really, so many different countries have won Davis Cup in the last few years. It's just kind of like everyone gets a piece of the pie and the stakes never really feel that high because every country who's any good will almost always have another shot at it. It's just too much. And the way that it's spaced out is like unbelievably bad in terms of keeping momentum as an event. They play in February and then they take and they take two months off and play in April. And they take five months off and play in September. And then they take two more months off and play in November. And then they're right back again in February. It's so like there's more, there's a shorter time between the final and the first round of the next year than between the quarterfinals and semifinals of the other year, which is nonsensical. Fed Cup is even worse on that front. Fed Cup goes February, April, November, which is just a completely ridiculous schedule. And I would love to see it be a two-week event, maybe even held all in one place. I understand the home and away aspect of it is big, but why not have it be more of a uh, a World Cup format type thing? And just, yeah, and I and think just, that's what the yeah. that's I think that's what the suggestion is: is that you make it a single venue, like destination tournament. Yeah, like World Cup like or you know things Hot like that. Men, and, yeah, yeah, you know, and it it could it could be very very interesting. Unfortunately, the ITF makes two much money off of this the way that the the format is and it would just require so much rejiggering with atp right well here's the slams so here's my suggestion have it be two weeks you can space them out if you want to but have 
like four like regional or non-regional uh, first round and quarterfinal week where like four countries win the right to host it somehow and they each host three other countries as well and they play like a NCAA March Madness thing you know there's regional parts and then one team makes it out of that and makes it to the final four and then you hold the final four somewhere else or if you want you can split that up into separate weeks for semifinal and final and have those played as traditional home and away ties I think there's just a lot of ways to do it and the current system really makes it not exciting. Also, as people who've heard this show may be aware, I'm not a huge fan of best of five. I think best of five really doesn't have a place in Davis Cup in terms of encouraging top players to play it. It's a big ask for someone like Federer, whoever, however old he is and has a bad back, to go out there and try to play best of five on a surface that might be different from the one he played on the term before and the tournament after. I think that making it best of three would make it much more top player friendly and television friendly because the way it is now, on those last Sundays, the way they have it where you can stop now after the fourth rubber, or fourth tie, no, after the fourth rubber, you could have three sets played on Sunday or ten sets, and that's impossible to program for. So I think that's a basic change that can make it really, make it much friendlier as a product, which I think it needs because people just doesn't capture the public imagination almost ever, in this country at least, and I don't really think anywhere else. Even Serbia wasn't that full for a lot of those matches. Yeah, nobody really stuck around for Tipsarovic, uh, Raonic, I guess. No, people, that, that... people want to see Djokovic. They don't want to see Davis Cup, is what we learned. There. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I'm totally down with, like, best of three in Davis Cup for sure. You know, or even if you want to do, like, decisive rubbers best of five, fine. Like, you know, like, the fifth. If it gets to the fifth decisive, let's go best of five, like... Okay, I'm down with that. Definitely have the doubles be best of three, because that will encourage singles guys to possibly play it, which would be cool. Yeah, but it's just, man, I mean, every single time Davis Cup rolls around, I'm reminded of how much of a grind it is. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously for the players, but also like for those of us who have to like actually sit and pay attention and watch it and the commentators have to commentate it and all these sorts of things. Like, I'm like, good Lord, that was a long day. And for what? That was a long day for a 2-0 lead. Yeah. <laughs> that was, like, never in doubt. Pretty much. Spain. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know, I mean, like... Anyone who watched Spain, Ukraine, season was completely <laughs> wasting their time. Let's be real. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, total, I totally agree with that. I, what do you, how do you feel about the every other year suggestion? Yeah, I'm okay with that. I really, I, I, I'm not, you know, Davis Cup and Fed Cup, to me, I mean, I think that they're great competitions. I enjoy them. You know, they're, they can be fun. I don't get super stoked for them. Like, I think next year will be probably the first time that I'm super excited for Davis Cup. And even then, when I say super excited, that's just relative within the range of how excited I have ever gotten about Davis Cup. Yeah. So it's not like I'm going to be canceling vacation plans in order to to go to, you know, GB. USA. But I'll be like, oh, I definitely want to see how that one turns out. So, you know, it, to the extent that there can be changes to make it more interesting and make it more high stakes, really. Because at the end of the day, like, the whole point is just to, like, stay in world group. Like, so long as you stay in world group, like, if you lose in the first round, then it's like, okay, well, we got to refocus because in a few months, we, we need to stay in world group. We need to win our next rubber or next tie. Right. But if you win the first round and then you lose in the second round, it's like, okay, whatever. We're still in world group. Right. I think they can make the stakes for that part higher and making world group smaller the way it is in Fed Cup. I think it should be smaller. I mean, there is next year going to be a first round tie between Belgium and Kazakhstan. This Correct. should not happen. This no. should not happen. And also the Netherlands is in there, which, you know, God bless you, Netherlands. But I'm not really sure why you're considered a relevant country in, in world tennis right now. Germany shouldn't be in there. Germany should, Sorry. sure. Nah. They have Kohlschreiber? Kohlschreiber, Haas, yeah. and Meyer. That's, oh, that's a solid. Haas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget that Haas does 
Has Haas played not Davis in a while, Not in a while, though. But they still, okay, as, that's what they I was still say, as a country. For them. Well, they have Cole Schreiber, no, Meyer. For World Group? If you had to knock four countries out of World Group so that you made it a smaller group. Yeah. Oh, that's easy. Germany's the fourth. No, it goes Kazakhstan, Netherlands, Belgium, and... Oh, maybe Ukraine? How about no, Japan? Ukraine got, got knocked down. Yeah. How about uh, Japan? How dare you, sir? <laughs> How dare you? Oh, okay. How about Australia? Really? Australia's never going to make it a run. Could. Anyway, if you guys have your own votes for who you want to see out Seriously. of Davis Cup, or just your thoughts on it. We put a lot of stuff out there. Exactly. Let us know what your solutions are. Or if you don't think it needs any fixing at all, and you think it's awesome, and maybe yeah. you're the ITF. Yeah, please uh, let us know. Let us know. We, I, because I, it's, it's a conversation I never really have with a lot of people, like an actual extended conversation as to like what... It's kind of hard to get worked up about it just because, yeah, just exactly. because it's I so spaced out. It's like it's this quarterly event that happens. And it's like, OK, it's kind of like paying taxes. And the way they have it set up with the Olympics makes it really feel more like a chore than an exciting thing to do. I mean, really, the only reason that in Fed Cup, for example, the Williams sisters ever play is because they need to keep their Olympic eligibility. Same with Sharapova. I mean, you talk about a competition that's really broken. Fed Cup. It's completely yeah. relevant because no one plays. And yep. the final is going to happen this week, uh, in a few weeks in Sardinia between Italy and Russia, and no one's going to care. Nope. nope. And, and this, is, this is the thing, that I guess, if I were to reiterate kind of how I feel about Davis Cup, I care about Davis Cup as much as the top players care about Davis Cup. And if they don't, then I don't. Yeah. And that's maybe unfair. I mean, but but the, the competition itself, the trophy itself, carry very little weight to me. Like St- when Stepanek beat Almagro in the fifth rubber last year to win the check of the tie, <laughs> it was like, okay. It was like watching a 250 final, kind of. It was not. Yeah. Was and it was rough. and it was kind of this. Yeah. And it was the same kind of reaction, which was like, good for you. Like, that's really awesome. There's no bearing like, is... on, like, the tennis landscape in the world. Exactly. Yeah. This is not a exactly. seismic shift in anything. Right. So, yeah. And it's not really a statement as to... That's the thing, too. It's not really a statement as to your country's, like... The best. Yeah. Like, I don't think the country that wins Davis Cup is necessarily the best tennis country. No. So, what exactly are we talking about then when we talk about, oh, you won it? It's like, well, then you're just talking about a tournament. You won a tournament. Yeah. Not like a, a bigger deal tournament. And then and then the kind of value of that tournament is really based on the competition that you faced. So if you didn't play anybody really throughout the tournament that was really like difficult, it do, does it devalue your accomplishment a little bit? Maybe? I think so. Like, you know, so this is the problem with the Davis Cup and the Fed Cup. I agree. And, and, and which is why next year should be fun. Indeed. We've talked about this a lot. Let's talk about something else. Yes. It's, it's fairly rare in tennis for someone to suddenly publish a diary. I'm not sure this has happened before, but we got it this week with Thomas Truet, noted hitting partner of Bernard Tomic and later Marian Bartoli, releasing a two-part diary on an Australian news website about his time with the Tomics. Courtney, can you explain to people who maybe missed this journaling <laughs> what exactly Thomas Truet was telling the world about his time in Tomic Land. Yes, so Thomas Drouet, uh, yeah, published these two blog, or I guess, diary, well, he calls them diary posts. I struggled to kind of figure out how to 
I don't think they were written at the time. Though. Yeah, they, were they weren't contemporaneous, yeah. which is why I don't really like the idea that it's like, oh, his diary. It's like it's more of a memoir. Yeah, like he, it's a reconstruction yeah. <laughs> of his me- or his memories, like as he's jotting them down now. Right. Anyway. But yeah, so so he wrote these two blog posts for the News Limited Network, which is like an Aussie based news agency slash website i'm not really entirely sure yeah just kind of detailing his seven months i think with um the tomics and it was in the big scheme of things it didn't tell at least from my perspective and my opinion and i'll be interested to hear yours ben because i don't think we've talked about this from my perspective it didn't really tell me anything i didn't already know mm-hmm. on some level maybe there were more specifics provided and more color but for the most part it talks about you know, obviously he goes through the details of, of the incident in Madrid when um, uh, John Tomic headbutted him. He talks about the incident that he witnessed in Monte Carlo a week before Madrid, where John Tomic allegedly punched Bernie in the face. And at least on that one, what I found interesting was that he actually provided a screen cap of the text message he was sending to Bernard, which basically seemed to verify the fact that the, the incident occurred, yeah. that the physical harm occurred, and that Bernard's reaction to and what he texted back to Drouet seemed it wasn't like he thought it was a big deal right which would you know I mean imply if I weren't a lawyer arguing this imply that it was not an isolated incident so that and then also he talks a lot about kind of Tomic sneaking out going out and partying being hungover and being ridiculous getting way out of shape yeah getting way out of shape after the Aussie tanking calls him Mr. 50%, all this sort of stuff. And it, it just wasn't, and, and generally just being treated really poorly by the, both of them. So that was kind of the summary of it. Yeah, like you said, I think this was nothing we didn't really have a pretty good sense of already. It was nice to have it all laid out from a fairly, we talk about this, I guess, separately, but a fairly credible source on these things. I'm not entirely sure why he'd be making up big chunks of this. Maybe some of it was a little embellished because he did come off as fairly whiny during the whole thing. Yeah, he was pretty whiny. But, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, as people who've been around tennis, Bernard is kind of a hard person not to pay some attention to. And I think we have a pretty good sense of what he's like and the idea of him, you know, going out, sneaking out, partying. And being very inconsistent with his effort and his dedication level, none of that is surprising. Exactly. I mean, to the extent there was anything surprising in those diaries, what would you tag that to be, Ben? Or, like, just memorable or... One thing that never became clear in the diary, and I realized, I guess sort of what struck me about it is sort of the lack of intervention from the rest of the tour in some way. Like, a lot of people knew Mm -hmm. this was all going on, and they would talk to him and say, like, what are you still doing with them? They're obviously terrible. They're treating you like shit, but he stuck with it. And just sort of wondering, like, it was sort of a horror movie sense, you know, when you're watching, reading this thing, just like, Drouet, get out of there. You do not need this. It was never clear also in the story, I don't think, how he started with them. Did that that include it? No. So that would have been an interesting thing to know. And, uh, yeah, I just thought the whole thing was just sort of sad and predictable. And, and let's, you know, that Bernie really is a um, a wasted talent. And also, I think that, you know, for all the people saying, oh, Bernie's get his act together, maybe he never will. Maybe he was never meant to be a yeah. dedicated, focused, tunnel vision athlete of the highest order. Not everyone is cut out for that. And he doesn't really seem to be. And that's okay. And that's fine. It happens. That's, that's perfectly fine. Not everyone is meant to live up to their potential. And not everybody who's given a talent is has has been given the other tools to make good of that talent. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know people like that. Like, I know tons of people like that, like, who are like, I have a friend who's like a great and incredibly good writer, and he's a lawyer. 
And that is not taking advantage of his skills at all, but pays bills and it's fine and like whatever. And he's probably never going to tap into that talent, which is like bums all of us out, but whatever. Yeah. And so with Bernie, it's just, it, it, you know, it's disappointing from a selfish perspective, but at the in the bigger picture, you just kind of hope that that he's okay, you know, in that, you know, pretty volatile situation. And, and it's it's one that, you know, at this point, Tomic is not a child. He's not a little boy. You know, he has to make these decisions on his own if he wants to kind of keep operating within that kind of very toxic scheme. I think that I don't I feel like maybe you and I talked about this either offline or on this podcast before when, we, when it was about Tomic that, you know, there's a part of me that kind of thinks that, yes, his father is overbearing and extremely confrontational and possibly actually violent. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, like maybe at the same time, like Tom, Bernie knows how to deal with his dad and his dad isn't... The, the, Bernie can apparently get away with being Mr. 50%. He can get away with being, you know, the guy who kind of can tank matches and or practice sets as he did against Katie Shikori, according to Drouet. He never really implied that that John Tomic was mad about the tanking. Right. Okay. So to the but so maybe if I'm Tomic, I'm like, all right, yes, my dad is my dad. And he treats me the way that he treats me. But it's actually kind of a good deal. Like, you know, like I kind of get to travel the world. It's fine. And I don't actually have to work my butt off versus severing ties with your dad, hiring a proper coach who's going to actually demand like you work hard and like live up to your potential. Maybe Bernie's just like, I don't want to deal with that. The dad's a little bit of a security blanket. It's a little bit of a built in excuse for him at this point. And getting rid of the dad would mean leaving his comfort zone. And even if that does mean good things, almost guaranteed. Talk about, you know, like him winning a Hotman Cup over Djokovic when his dad wasn't there. Having that really great week there. I mean, yeah, I mean, but he's not willing to do that. And like I said a little bit earlier, so what? I mean, I'm not going to weep for Bernard Tomic's missed potential at this point. He does what he wants to do. Whatever. Fair. So we put out a call for questions, and as always when we do that, or just any time you have something burning in your mind and you want to share it with us for a future episode, you can always email us. Our email address is nochallengesremaining at gmail.com, and we'll get to them hopefully. And today we got a question on our email machine from Corey, who asks us, what do you guys make of Taylor Townsend giving up juniors? Part of me thinks she's not quite ready for the big leagues, but I also think maybe playing with the pros might toughen up her game a bit. At a minimum, it will give her a clear sense of of the stuff she is going to need to work on to make it as a pro. I'm a Townsend booster and think she has a lot of game. I just worry that she hasn't honed her game enough yet for the pros. I hate to see her flame out as a result of rushing into the pros too fast, and I'd love to hear what you think about this. So, Courtney, what do you make of Taylor Townsend deciding to stop her juniors. I guess she pulled out of U.S. Open and said she wasn't going to play any more juniors. And just in general, the phenomenon of when people make that choice to stop the juniors and focus only on the adult events. I feel a lot the same way about kind of that decision as I do with respect to the decision of whether to turn pro or go to college. Okay. Which is that, like, you know, for some players, it absolutely makes sense to bypass college and become a pro at 18 years old and go and and do the whole tour thing and hone your skills and things like that. But I think that for a lot of people and most players, it's actually not the right idea. And that 
you should actually play in college and build your confidence and allow your physicality to catch up with your game and your game to catch up with your physicality. And so with junior, the transition from juniors to kind of the senior tour, I feel a bit the same way. And I do feel that, and this is speaking more broadly before I talk about Taylor specifically, but just you know, there's a lot to be said about if you're a top level junior of kind of continuing to play juniors, even though it seems like you've reached the top and you should quote unquote graduate to seniors, that you should continue to play juniors. Cause like, you know, what's really fun sometimes winning, Yeah. like winning builds confidence. Winning teaches you how to win. Winning breeds winning. Winning breeds winning. And that's one thing that like really, I had an interview with James Blake, maybe like a year or two ago. And we were talking about college tennis. And he said that was one of the biggest things was that like, and Isner has said this as well, is that they went to college and they just won. And it was huge for like their confidence to be able to just go and like play a ridiculous number of matches, win them. And to while their friends who were like grinding it out as like 19 year olds on tour were just losing week after week after week in qualies and in ITFs, you know? And so, you know, I think that a player that you, that I look back at and I just remember thinking like, man, I'm really surprised she's still playing juniors. But I think that it was a really good move for her was Jeannie Bouchard. Yeah. She's a player who could have, you know, she's the same age as Laura and Laura, you know, gave up juniors fairly quickly. Yeah. Laura won Wimbledon in 2008 at 14 and Jeannie, who's the same age, won Wimbledon at 18 in 2012. Right. Totally different stages of their lives. And yeah, totally. And Jeannie hung on. A lot of people, I think, were wondering, what is she still doing playing juniors? But look at her transition from juniors to the pros. It's been really pretty seamless results-wise. And she's been, and she's kind of built this reputation of, of kind of being a player who doesn't choke. Yeah. Like, she knows how to win. She knows how to close. She knows how to handle her emotions, you know? And, and, it's, and she's still kind of like, but still has kind of that air of a teenager, which is quite refreshing, you know? So it kind of seems like, oh, she played juniors and it was fun and she was winning and that's great. And, you know, and was able to, to kind of build towards success. And so with Taylor, yeah, I mean, I definitely was surprised to see that she kind of like stopped playing juniors. Rel- I mean, not relatively early, probably about the same time as many do, which is like, what, 17? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Early part of 17, yeah. Yeah, early 17. But with her ranking being where it is and everything, I just don't know, like, can she, like, kind of do the whole tour thing and, and build up her ranking and play the ITFs and the challengers that she needs to to get it up to where it needs to be? Or It's curious because I, I just, you know, why wouldn't you just go play juniors if you could yeah. as opposed to just sitting out and not playing at all? I think you should wait until you get some pro success to stop playing juniors. I mean, Bouchard had won tour-level matches at pro tournaments before she stopped juniors. Look at someone like Putin Seva who stopped. Not that she's had the best year in terms of her pro results, but she had played and done well in a bunch of challenges, won a bunch of fairly sizable challenges actually before she stopped playing juniors. You look at like Ashley Barty, the same thing. She won junior Wimbledon and she's actually probably made a better transition than anyone overall in terms of that because she is 17 and made the finals of three grand slams and doubles this year which is crazy yeah overall i just don't think there's a rush if you are someone like taylor townsend and you're ranked i'm not exactly sure but roughly somewhere in 300 right now if you remove yourself from juniors you remove yourself from these grand slam stages from the environments of those tours and you relegate yourself to only playing tournaments you can qualify for with your ranking and i guess wild cards as well but you're no longer going to get to play the Australian Open and be in that atmosphere and get more used to that, or the French, or Wimbledon, or whatever. And just why? When you when you haven't accomplished everything, if you're it's one thing if you're someone who's won like all the biggest junior titles, but Townsend hadn't. She made one Wimbledon final and one 
Australia, but that's about it. She still had other things she could do, and what's the rush? I was talking to Colette Lewis, who's a junior tennis expert. The go-to. The junior tennis expert, and she was saying that there were a lot of players who she was talking to at the U.S. Open this year who were saying, junior players, who were saying things like, oh, you know, I'm so over juniors. Like, I, this is my last junior tournament. I don't have any more to get out of juniors. I'm ready to be pro. And just, like, feeling that there was a little too cool for school going on there. And it's unfortunate because there's just, with how late careers are peaking right now in pro tennis, there's no rush. Just enjoy being a kid. Enjoy getting to play on this slightly lower level. It's like playing, you know, college basketball or something. Go go out and play March Madness and don't ride the bench or whatever. Yeah, go to, you know, go to high school, have friends, have time to, like, actually, like, be a child. And, I mean, I think that when you were kind of relaying the conversation you had with Colette, the the immediate thing that, like, popped into my head was just like, oh, this generation. Like, this is kind of, you know, we've seen this over the course of the last, like, 20 years that every generation has, like, grown up earlier than the generation before it Mm -hmm. in terms of maturity but like right but it's even more accelerated because nowadays with like technology and shit like these kids from like the ages of like 12 you know well not 12 but like i don't know yeah 12 to like 22 the way they talk the way they act their aspirations the things that they think about all these sorts of things are like things that like i didn't think about until i was like 25 like you know like i or when i was like well into college but there's just this kind of sense that like everything has to be attained now Mm -hmm. like I need to be successful at like 16 years old or 17 years old, which is a weird thing to say in tennis because actually back in the day, that was right. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Used to happen. Used to happen. But like, I look at some of these like junior players and I'm like, "Mm, why would you want to turn pro? And like recognize that like this tennis thing, especially the way that now tennis careers are, that you're going to be doing this for 15 years. Yeah. Like why? Like, you know, like, enjoy life, like, do your thing, you know, obviously be, you know, committed to being a professional tennis player, committed to training and and technical work and tactical work and all these sorts of things. But especially, I mean, for both the girls and the guys, the way this game is going and how physical it's become, you guys need to, like, grow up, like, physically. Yeah. And then we can start talking about, like, your kind of prospects as to what you can do on the pro tour. Because until you stop growing... Like, that's kind of one thing that I kind of personally have as a rule. Like, I try not to prognosticate about how good a, a young junior is going to be until they stop growing. Fair. Because it just makes no sense. The one thing that we haven't mentioned on this is there is obviously a financial aspect yes. to this in terms of wanting to turn pro to finance your career and get money to pay for all your training and equipment and travel and whatnot. That I totally understand. And that's why for players who do seem destined to be big-time juniors, like a Donald Young, was or big sorry big time pro at a young age like donald young i do understand turning pro and starting to take endorsement money and stuff like that at a younger age and then but donald young kept playing juniors with some breaks he kept playing juniors until he was 18 and for a while his transition was going okay until it fell apart so yeah i mean obviously that's just one sort of a side i want to put in there obviously we know that you can't keep being uh playing a full junior schedule forever without some source of income whether that's federation or from prize money yeah no, without a doubt. I mean, I, I wonder some, I mean, I don't know, honestly, what the behind the scenes discussions are, but I do wonder if like, does the USTA come in and say like, actually, well, okay, we'll give you more funding to stay as a junior. Like we'll pick up like some of the tab and like whatever. Or does the USTA say yeah, like, no, oh, yeah, turn pro. Cause then we can kind of ease the funding a little bit, or maybe we'll fund you more if you turn pro. I don't know. I'm just, I always I'm, get the sense that the kids are the ones who pulled the record on the juniors. I was going to say that they're the ones. Who, I know Putin Seva, for a fact, was the one who did it herself because her dad wanted her to keep playing juniors because she hadn't won a junior Grand Slam yet. 
Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, I don't care. I've won like challengers and stuff and I'm 17 or 16 or however old she was. I don't want to keep doing this. It doesn't matter to me. She would have been the top seed in Australia and she pulled out just because she yeah. was over it. And I got, that's the sense I got from how Taylor's decision went as well. She just sort of felt like, you know, she's had a couple wins at the tour level, but very few, but in qualifying and one in, in New Wells main draw. And she felt like it was just that part of her life has passed her. And I understand that feeling like you don't want to keep sitting at the kids' table at these tournaments. But but it's not either or, though. That's the thing about it. It's not like you have to like choose either juniors or seniors. You can play both if you're eligible to play both. And that's why, like, with Taylor, like, she was in qualies for U.S. Open, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, in main, main draw qualies, so for seniors, and then loss. And it's like, well, then you're just going to go home. Like, why wouldn't you just stick around? I mean, if you want to play juniors, you just stick around for another week. You get to be in New York. You get to, like, you know, and then you get to go play on the courts and have people cheer for you and if you have sponsors it's great too because like people see you and and your name you know gets bigger and more opportunity for interviews and and coverage and things so i don't know maybe there's stuff going on behind the scenes that like we're completely ignorant of which is always a possibility when it comes to the juniors and seniors really (laughs) anything anything but yeah it's it's cure i don't yeah it's not either or One of the other developments, speaking of sort of developmental tennis, has been on the college level recently. And the NCAA and governing bodies and people and the ITA, people with influence in college tennis, have proposed a few different changes to the format of the event in recent years. As it stands now, or previously, college tennis is played with uh, three doubles matches at starting the event between two given schools. And then whoever wins two of those... Uh, wins the first point. Then there are six singles matches played afterwards, each of those worth one point. So first of four points win seven points at stake at all. So the doubles comes first and only determines one point. And so someone recently, there were recent suggestions that the doubles should come afterwards only if it's tied and singles should come first and that there should only be one ad scoring, which is an interesting sort of compromise between no ad and one ad. (laughs) which doesn't, <laughs> I don't probably get the point of one ad scoring. But yeah, so basically that's the premise there. Doubles would be essentially devalued or rarely used, sort of the way it is in, think of it in Fed Cup compared to in Davis Cup, I guess. But even more than Davis Cup because it comes first before any singles is played. And so a question we got from Colette Lewis, the aforementioned junior tennis maven, who asked us just generally, what importance do you attach to doubles in the professional game? Courtney, what do you make of doubles? Well, first of all, I should add that Colette is not just a juniors expert, but also just basically amateur college, tennis. Yeah, so college. college as well, because she rules and is awesome. But yeah, I mean, doubles within the pro game, it's always tough. You know, when we have this discussion, I think this discussion was had quite extensively during the U.S. Open because of how much doubles coverage there was on television with the Bryans and the Williamses mm-hmm. that, you know, it is the game that most Americans play. So to the extent that you play tennis in, the, in America or probably worldwide, you probably play doubles more than singles. That's just data, apparently, because mm-hmm. I kept hearing that all the time. And yet, you know, it's it's a it, we never see it on television. You know, it's it's kind of, you know, for myself, I cover the sport and I definitely put it on a, a, a secondary tier. Oh, yeah. In terms of, of what is an interesting story or players to cover or teams to cover. Just relevance. Yeah, relevance issues. And so that's kind of the weird disconnect is that because when you go to tournaments live, people love doubles. Sometimes. Like, 
Really? Like, I don't know. Like, at least when I go to, like, stateside tournaments and stuff, like, people seem to, like, love it. Like, the, you know, you go, I can sit in the crowd and the chatter that I hear is, like, the people are, the fans are so engaged. Like, they're talking strategy and it's, like, at Indian Wells, it's the best because you have, like, kind of the older women who, like, play at the club. Like, I have a proper tennis club and they're, like, with their doubles partners and, like, they'll be watching a doubles match and be, like, see, Ethel, that's exactly what you did the other day and it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And I love it. (laughs) Like, I will always make it a point to, like, sit near people. I normally isolate myself when I watch tennis matches, but doubles at Indian Wells, I go out of my way yeah. to like sit with an earshot. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not as big a thing. And I don't think that we can pretend that it is. Yeah, I think interesting on the crowd front. I mean, first of all, there are lots of tournaments where there are big doubles crowds for some really obscure doubles matches where it just does not matter who's playing. Indian Wells is the main example of that where they really do seem to like doubles pretty well. When we've been to Charleston in the past, they've gotten pretty good crowds for doubles as well. But there are also times we have a double semifinal going on on, you know, court two, while the main semifinal is going on in court one, there might be 10 people in the stands. Well, of course. I mean, you, no, to the I'm extent ju- that you... I'm just saying that, you know, yeah. obviously the data on it being just as popular and more popular does not always hold up. But yeah, no, I do think that it is there. I think we talked about this before on the show. I don't think it translates that well to TV. And I do think the whole concept of, oh, people care because they play it as well doesn't always work either i mean talk about like soccer in the u.s i'm pretty sure more kids play soccer than any other, any other sport doesn't translate to more kids being soccer fans than any other sport as well mm. there's a disconnect between participation and viewership when it comes to sports plenty of people go jogging or swimming and they don't watch those things like they really care no 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 no. but like there's no in my i think i've said this to you before in my experience there's no sport that is where like a legit because swimming doesn't count like that's like where would you even kind of watch swimming except on these like you know when they have like the big you know international worldwide meets or nationals or something like that like when you're talking about tennis as a pro sport that goes on a weekly basis I've always been so shocked as to like how many people play tennis and have absolutely no idea who won Wimbledon right that's what I'm saying there's a disconnect between participation and fandom yeah I know I'm just saying that like I've never seen a sport as bad as tennis in the, in terms of that disconnect it's definitely a bad one I'm not sure if there's I don't know if soccer's worse or if and that's so I definitely don't think soccer's worse I, especially now I mean it used to be really bad because of like there just wasn't soccer on TV back when I in played America. soccer in my day like when I was playing when I was like seven eight years old I probably couldn't have named more than three professional players sure because there wasn't access to it it wasn't on tv like this is anyway i've had i think i've had this discussion with you offline but like there's i think that the the fact that like there's more soccer available to like americans to actually watch nowadays both online and on tv with the espn backing a lot of the kind of soccer stuff and nbc as well that that is completely changing like the soccer culture within america to where we actually do know who like a Lionel Messi is and we can watch him on a weekly basis. Whereas when I was growing up, I could never, and I grew up in like a soccer family. I could never watch a soccer game. So I wouldn't know. Yeah. We'll see. I think, I think that's an interesting debate because I do, I do think there's a disconnect just from people participation and pro level engagement on all sports. A lot of times it's probably, I think like basketball, for example, probably have a lot less. Something like hockey probably has less. Football definitely has less. American football. Mm-hmm. Baseball probably the same. But yeah, the sports that are sort of more known for recreation than professional, which is stuff like tennis and soccer in the U.S. anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's probably comparable. Comparable levels of cluelessness. Disagree. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to get, to get to the general point, doubles is a different sport than singles. It's just different. It's a completely separate, in some ways, almost 
parasitic thing on the sport in that it would not survive without singles there to attach itself to it every tournament. If there was a separate double store, I don't think it would do anything. I think it would completely fail. And I like du- I like watching doubles. I like mixed doubles especially. I think it's sort of cool. The um, awkwardness and intricacies and etiquettes of that I enjoy. But generally, doubles, it just doesn't feel like it's that important because the teams change all the time. And even then, I, part of what I like about tennis is it being an individual sport, being very mono and mono and mental. And I think that doubles makes that a little bit less of the case. For me, it just doesn't have the same hook and the same intensity. Yeah, I mean, my, my two critiques of doubles is, first of all, it's too, it's, well, these are kind of like, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit, but on one hand, it's too fast, mm-hmm. especially men's doubles, like service games or like, you know. So many are, holds. Yeah, so many holds and, you know, no returns and, you know, one, two and it's over. And I kind of fell away from liking men's tennis for a long time because of that type of tennis totally. when it was like straight up, just like serve, hold, done. So I didn't like that the same time it's too slow they need to if you want to talk about like time violations give doubles players time violations they shouldn't be spending more than 25 seconds between points i understand there needs to be like communication and all that but it does noticeably slow down the game when between first and second serves they're coming back together and it's ex- to like chat about what they need to do and it's exaggerated and it, because the points are so short exactly no yeah. it, it, you're so right i mean it, it maybe it is within the 25 seconds and i'm i don't know but like it just feels like come on get on with it you know that's kind of one of those things where i would love to see kind of the atp step and kind of change that and that would actually kind of move the pace of doubles along and and maybe that would be better i don't know but those are kind of my two the two barriers that I personally have to kind of enjoy sitting down to enjoy a doubles match. I would love for it to be bigger. I mean, I think there are some definitely some cool things in there. And I think for it to be bigger, it really needs more participation from the top guys and women a little bit less because there are more of them to participate. But a lot of that comes back to uh, my previous arguments again about (laughs) best of three at slams. If there was best of three at slams, the way there is at Indian Wells, for example, it was a two week tournament. You'd see a lot of guys entering doubles and it would make the doubles fields much stronger there is some pretty good money to be made there in doubles. And for those people who are in favor favor or against equal prize money should be in favor of that. Because right now, the way it works, uh, Serena made more money than Nadal at the U.S. Open because she was able to play doubles as well because she didn't have to play best of five, whereas Nadal was not. And so it's not equal opportunity there necessarily for work. So especially at Wimbledon, where doubles is best of five as well. I mean, it's impossible yeah. to play both. Or it's really, I mean, people do it, but it's not advisable. So yeah, I think that it's just another, if they made best of three the thing in singles, it would help doubles a lot. It'd be a consequence of thing they should be aware of when discussing that issue. I feel like we're like maybe only two or three episodes away from renaming this podcast. No fourth or fifth set remaining. <laughs> it's just like, you, it, it, it's your mission. I appreciate it. The passion is adorable. It is adorable, isn't it, though? I mean, <laughs> it is. I think that a lot of people are like, oh, shut up. Because I tweeted about it a fair amount. People are like, oh, give up. It's not happening. No, but I don't know. It may not happen, but I think that you're. I mean, as one who kind of maybe before I had to hear this from you incessantly, like if you guys think he tweets about it a lot and like talks (laughs) about it on the podcast a lot, imagine what like an eight-hour car ride with this dude is like. Oh please, oh please, like non-stop. No, no. But I mean, I think that you know before kind of you brought it up i think i was very much a best of five like oh i like the battle i like the the pummeling the body you know the body blows like all those sorts of and now i'm so over it i'm like no you're right best of three over it thank you and i and i see the merit so you keep you keep you keep keeping on buddy you'll change some minds i'm nothing if not wildly persuasive (laughs) 
speaking, I've, I've, heard, I've heard doubles guys are actually in favor of it. I've heard both on the single side. I've heard both Mirny and Zimenich say they'd like for singles to be best of three to preserve careers because they think it's too grueling for the players to play best of five. So mm-hmm. there you go. We got a question from David De La Fuente who asks us, what is the biggest deterrent to 2014 greatness? Djokovic's mental game, Nadal's knees, Murray's motivation, or Federer's vests? Courtney? I am going to go with Djokovic's mental health. Okay, explain. Mental game was his phrasing. I know. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, like Rafa's knees, Rafa's knees. We can talk about Rafa's knees all we want. I mean, I think that that's just a constant concern. Like, yeah, if Rafa's knees break, that is going to change the landscape of tennis a little bit, (laughs) you know, but I I don't think that that's going to happen. So, you know, and I don't think that Murray's unmotivated and Federer's vests, you know, he's old, man. Let the man wear vests. But do you think the wearing of the vest is too much an admission and embracing of elderliness? And when he puts on this vest, he says, you know what? I'm not really a contender anymore. I'm just an old guy. It it does kind of like signal an entry an entree into like Connor's dumb. Yeah, right. Right, like it just kind of is like, oh, are you forty something? <laughs> <laughs> is that what we're doing now? Okay, cool. Yeah, no, maybe, but but at the same time, like I don't really think that from well, I mean, I guess obviously storyline. Sorry, I'm kind of thinking this out and showing my work That's as fine. I do this. You get partial credit a, for that. Thank you. Um, even if I'm wrong. So yeah, I mean, I think that if Fetter kind of goes into 2014 or has like just a really crap 2014 i just don't think it matters unless he retires in other words if he slips down to like top 20 yeah yeah, you know and is no longer top 10 woe is me and or woe is tennis and like yada 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 but it doesn't ever really hit a critical point until he actually pulls the ripcord so i don't know what that means i'm just talking my thoughts out so to me it's really about novak i mean i think that because he's the spoiler I mean, Novak really, once he kind of figured his crap out, kind of got himself out of that weird, like, 09-2010 slump and really figured everything out. Like, he changed the game. Like, he could beat Federer. He could beat Murray. He could beat Nadal. And he could kind of do it in, in really, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if other people find it compelling, but I find it in a, in a compelling fashion. I like watching Novak play. So if he is off, the tour kind of reverts into this kind of predictable pyramid of Rafa's on top because he can beat Novak and he can be fed and he pretty much still owns Murray in the slams until Murray proves otherwise. Mm-hmm. Murray's still the odd man out. Rogers, whatever. So I, I think that Novak is really the guy that drives, is the key cog in the narrative. I would, my answer to this question would be Murray's motivation. Just because I think this, and this is talking only for 2014 really, but Murray's 20, end of 2012 and 2013 were so destiny-fulfilling, and just, like, his bucket list on the sport should be complete. If he retired tomorrow or never won another tournament again, his career would be an undeniable success, and he'd be a savior and a knight and all those other wonderful things that he did for British tennis. Winning a Grand Slam and then winning Wimbledon and Olympic gold, for me, Murray getting his hunger back has to be a little bit contrived at some point. You know what I mean? He was at some point driven by a level of insecurity i guess it stemmed from unsatisfaction or people disparaging his results or his potential or how he never got it done and now that he's gotten it done getting his hunger back will have to be a real effort it might happen eventually with time just naturally or it might not he might have to really pep himself up and you know talking to that bathroom mirror again and fire himself up all over again 
to say, I still need to give 110% because he, like we discussed, probably the hardest worker of the big four in a lot of ways. He's probably Mm -hmm. the one with the least amount of natural talent per se. And so he's had to really earn what he's gotten. And if that level falls off, it can mean a pretty noticeable dip in his number of big titles that he gets in the future. And I think that, yeah, I think that unless shown otherwise, he needs to show that he has it back because it'd be very easy for him to be content right now. Yeah. I buy that. I just don't, I guess, yeah. No, I buy that. Cool. Look at us agreeing, kinda. Kinda. Next question comes from Tony, TJC05, who asks us, with Grand Slam season over, who were you guys looking at that need to make some sort of moves on court or off court to boost their 2013 grade? So, Courtney, who Mm -hmm. is the one who should be really needing a big score on the final exam, so to speak? even if it's not worth that much of the percentage of your total grade or whatever I'm going for there. I'm going to have to say, ooh, this is actually, I mean, boost your grade by like the most or... Who is the biggest opportunity to boost it, to do something that would be like, wow, this changes my opinion of their 2013, whether it's on quarter off. So like, for example, if it's a new coach or if it's a new, or if it's winning, you know, some subsequent tournament or something or getting a big win... Who is it? I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Sloane Stevens. Okay. Yes, I was tempted to I was tempted to kind of go with like a Redvanska or a Lee Na. You know, like if Lena won the year-end championships, like that would be pretty incredible. But she's going to probably finish the year. Well, she has Beijing points to defend, but she's likely to finish the year top five. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of boosting a grade from there, you know, it was a good, it was a pretty solid year for her, I thought. But I think that with Sloan, there are so many kind of, if you want to see them, there are so many different asterisks to her year where on paper, the results have been pretty solid slam wise, obviously. But if she were to do, be able to like win a title, That'd be good. In the, in, in the fall. Any title. Don't care. Any of them. Like a tournament like a Tokyo or a Beijing or like if she went to Linz even. And yeah, Linz, Osaka. Yeah. You know, like one of the, you know, one of those. Linz or Osaka. I mean, that's low-hanging fruit-ish. Osaka's pretty low-hanging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if she could just get that, then I think that that really caps off, I think, obviously a very solid year already, regardless of what she does in the fall. But that would have basically got her into the top 10. Get her into Istanbul, potentially. That's the thing with Sloan, I think, is a really big opportunity. Is she, if you if you take Bartoli out, assuming Bartoli is going to come back suddenly and decide, hey, you know what, I'm going to go make third round of Beijing and qualify for Istanbul, which she still could choose to do. Who knows? And you think that Sharapova is not going to play. Sloan becomes in ninth place in the, in the Istanbul race, and only a few dozen points behind Roberta Vinci. Yep. So... She could definitely get there. I think there's no she reason why Sloan can't beat Vinci through Asia. Should be a better time to surface for her. So I think Sloan's a good opportunity. If she get, if Sloan got her way into Istanbul, that would really be like, you know what? This is not a fluke. You know, no, I sort of belong here. You don't fluke your way yeah. to Istanbul. You really don't. No, you don't. You really, really don't. I mean, I think that that's the thing. It's like, you know, right now she's like outside, like just outside of the top 10. But if she can, you know, knock those kind of three milestones off, which is get your first title, WTA title, break the top 10 and qualify for Istanbul, that's one hell of a freaking year for Sloane Stevens. And in my mind, it would wipe away all of the asterisks about like, oh, well, Serena was injured here and she had a soft draw there, like whatever. Like it would be pretty solid. So I'm going to go with Sloane. My answer for the men's side is very similar. I'll pick John Isner 
I think John has a big, I think we talked about this last episode as well, but I think John has a big opportunity to make up some ground in Asia and to really get some good points and good wins in Asia and the European indoor season that are favorable conditions to him and get him closer to being back in top 10 and really get the whole USA top 20 narrative put away for quite a while. And it'd be a good step for him. And if he can get a good seed in Australia, he has no points to defend there, really. So it could set him up nicely for 2014. That's a good call. There we go. Look at us being all compatible and and also thinking of America. Right? Look at us. I like I that's like super weird for me. Yeah. <laughs> America. What America. That hashtag, man, it just like worms its way in and all of a sudden although I will say that I was where was this? Oh, I, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but like when I went to the the women's soccer game, mm-hmm. the US women's soccer game in DC, like all like after the goals, like there would be like the whole stadium would be chanting, chanting like USA. And my friend and I were like kind of standing there and we were like looking and I just like looked at my friend. I was like, I can't, like, I can't do it. I was wondering about that. I can't join in on this at all. So I think some of that actually interesting is sort of a sidebar. (laughs) I do think it's interesting though, because like, I feel like people, and I will say relatively socially liberal people in the world, in America, are uncomfortable with the USA, USA, USA chants, which I think we associate with like, Toby Keith concerts and and militarism and post nine eleven rallies and stuff gross just yeah but why is chanting that so much worse or less endearing than like Aussie 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 oi 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 when it's pretty much the same concept because we're assholes like in the in the in the grand scheme of like world politics like we are jerks and we do really crappy things and that's not to say that like other people don't but I just think that like. I personally, like, I, c- I probably could not wave a flag at a sporting event. Like, I really, really... And that's not to say I'm not patriotic. Like, I have a lot of, like, Team USA gear and, you know, like, obviously, like, the Olympics. Like, I absolutely love them and I root for America and all these sorts of things. But, like, just the chance and the flags specifically, those two things, I just cannot back. Can't do it. I, and it was like, you know, we're at a women's soccer game. Like, it's not like, you know, surrounded by kids and everybody's just kind of having a nice family time. And it wasn't, it didn't feel like super political or aggressive. It was like a very fun kind of, like, happy USA chant. And I still couldn't do it. Yeah, the USA chant. I, I on the flag, I could totally bring a flag to a national team game if I was going to a game. I don't think I own a flag that's the right size for that. But the chant, the chant's just kind of weird. The chant's weird. I think, like, even if anybody watched the World Cup qualifying game between USA and Mexico last week, like, there was a scene, you know, with the, so the U.S. supporters are called the outlaws. Which is stupid, by the way. Yeah, I don't really like it either. But, like, they were all, like, you know, in the you know, behind the goal or whatever and holding up their scarves that say like land of the free. And even like my friend, like who was there with me at the women's national game, like texted me and she's like, I don't think I could do that either. Like, it, you know, like I love the soccer team. They're great, but I could not hold up a, a, a big old scarf that said like land of the free in a really aggressive way. Like, screw you, Mexico. Like, (laughs) we're the land of the free. That's gross. Like, couldn't do it. So it was, like, it was interesting, though, because I've never... It's been a while since I've gone to, like, a United States-based, like, a national game or athletic event where a national team was playing. So it it was a while since I've had to confront that feeling. Yeah, we're such overdogs in the world, basically, is the thing. There is a part of it that's that, The last U.S. event that I went to, I guess, would have been U.S. versus Belarus uh, Fed Cup. Mm. And when it's like a crowd full of people chanting USA and hoping that Serena Williams 
beats down Anastasia Yakimova. <laughs> like, I guess I should be fired up for that as an American. Yeah. But, like, at the same time, like, it's little Belarus. It's one thing if they had Azarenka, but they didn't even have Azarenka. It was like, let's beat Gavortseva. <laughs> okay no exactly i mean that was the thing like at the women's soccer game like we won we eventually i think won the game seven zero yeah seven nil so it's like okay after the fourth goal i don't think that we should be chanting usa anymore i think this is excessive but at the same time i was just remembering this that i think this may have all started for me i feel like i'm in therapy right now mm -hmm, but this may have all yeah this may have all started at the last world cup when landon donovan scored that goal last minute goal against algeria and i remember being at a bar and being completely drunk by the time this happened it was morning by the way yeah no i know yeah yeah i'm just pointing out for listeners yeah totally totally drunk and like Landon scores the goal. And I remember like jumping up on the stool and being like, fuck you, Algeria. Like, blah, blah. and like the whole bar is going nuts. And to this day, I still feel so guilty about that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Like, I feel like, so, like I, there was this moment of just like, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. Like, why would you, why would those words ever come out of your mouth? Like, that is horrible. That game, by the way, was like the most overrated American triumph ever because it was embarrassing we hadn't put away Algeria by that point in the game that was a Pretty ugly win it was an ugly win but most of our wins are ugly that's I mean our win our, our win last week over Mexico was ugly trivia question for you you can refer back to earlier clues in the episode do you know what was happening at the same time that happened U.S. Algeria game oh my god I feel like you've told me this any idea no Isner Mahout that's right that was yep those were concurrent events, yo. It was. There you go. There you go. And I wasn't going to be chanting USA, USA at Wimbledon either oh. for John. So I just can't do it. You're not exactly <laughs> I'm God's sorry. country, apparently. No, I'm not. I'm from California. Definitely not God's country. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely <laughs> heathenly devil land. So now it's time to bring back one of our more popular features. Really, it's our only feature, per se, but we like it. It's take a number, or take a number between 1 and 100, uh, randomly using a random number generator, and talk about the player who corresponds to that number on each of the ATP and WTA rankings. So you got your ladies' rankings ready, Courtney? I do. Here we go. Our number between 1 and 100 for this week is... Doo -doo -doo, 76! I really oh should God. start limiting it to, like, top 50, but that would be cheating so it goes Sorry. but here we go 76 is our number once again a fairly unremarkable seeming number we'll see how it works out why don't you start ben okay oh luckily actually we have a repeat on the men's side so okay we might we'll get to do another one but on the men's side our repeat is a player who i think our analysis of him last time consisted of that he looked like an owl and it <laughs> is albert ramos it is so courtney will throw out this number and pick another one but Let's do, as a bonus person, whoever the woman is at 76, if we have not done her yet on this. Number 76 on the women is the number one South African. Oh. Chanel Schiappers. 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 Is it Schiappers? Schiappers, yeah. Schiappers, yeah. So, yeah, from Harris Smith, South Africa, currently ranked number 76, right-hander. I mean, I actually kind of feel like I've seen a lot of Chanel Schiappers play for whatever reason. She played a pretty memorable match in a, a losing effort, a three-set losing effort, I believe, to Francesca Schiavone in 2011, I want to say, at the U.S. Open. That was like... That sounds right, yeah. Yeah, it was actually like a really good match. And I was sitting next to, to Brian Graham, who was writing for SI, who um, loves Francesca Schiavone. And so it was just kind of fun sitting next to him and kind of talking to him about like Fran's game and stuff but like Schaper's like 
was right there and kind of almost pulled off the upset. I, I feel like at one point she maybe is like, I don't know, surf for the match or something. I don't know. But it was a pretty great one. And I think a few weeks later, she won Guangzhou for a title. So that was pretty good. The only other thing that I know about Chanel Schiffers is that at the U.S. Open this year, she played another woman from South Africa named Chanel. I was going to say uh, that. Damn it, that was my trivia. <laughs> oh, is that yours? Okay, you go. No, 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 no. But you took it. That's fine. There was a Chanel versus Chanel match, both South Africans. There's just US Open. Yeah, I was all over that. Spelled differently. It was, yeah, they were spelled differently, but it was Chanel versus Chanel uh, at the US Open first round. And actually, Coco Vandeweghe warmed up Chanel Skippers before that match, hence Coco Chanel. And <laughs> it was very, very amusing. And I think that I had maybe tweeted about the match that day and, and Coco was like, guess who warmed up one of them? So that was very amusing. There you go. So that's pretty good. The other thing I was going to say about Chanel Skeppers that I know have in my dossier on her, which is fairly limited, is that she, like Kevin Anderson, doesn't play for her country in the team events, doesn't play Fed Cup. And that left led to her being qualified for, but left off the Olympic team in 2012. So going back to sort of implications of Fed Cup and what it means for them. And the South African Federation has very, very little money. So the players don't really get paid as much as the other countries do for playing these events. And travel to South Africa is very disruptive to travel around the tennis tour. It's very remote compared to where most other places are on the tennis circuit. So it's hard for them to go back for home ties and stuff. So uh, that's the other thing on Chanel is that she's a victim of, in some ways, if you want to see it that way, she's a victim of the Fed Cup regulations as they pertain to the Olympics. So that's Chanel. Good stuff. Spin the wheel again and get a new fresh number. Maybe a lower one. We'll see. Hitting again. Do to do. 57. Mildly lower. Oh, okay. Okay. Courtney, why don't we start with you? Who is the woman at number 57? This could be a repeat, but I'm not sure. If it is, it's okay, because we have a new guy, so we'll just okay. make it lopsided. Number 57, Romina Prandi of Switzerland. This is a repeat, I think. We can talk about yeah. her briefly, I guess. I mean, things you need to know about Romina Prandi, she's taped up like a mummy. Yeah. She hits a lot of drop shots. Yeah. Switch from Italy to, to Switzerland at some point. Yep. And that's about it. Kind of. The guy at number 57 for the men, I didn't realize he was this high, but I guess it makes sense. At number 57, it's Leighton Hewitt. Hey! Come on! Come on! Courtney, what do you make of Leighton Hewitt? I saw that Leighton Hewitt is going to play Kuyong in 2014. Okay. And I saw the news of this, and it made me sad. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. Because... Bless his little heart. <laughs> he keeps competing. And it's great. And he pulls off these great wins. And he's totally like one of those guys that you do not want to see in your section of the draw in the first two rounds. But, like, stop messing up brackets, Leighton. It's not okay. He does mess them up because he does not tend to... He did a little bit at the U.S. Open this year, but generally he does not consolidate his wins. Mm-hmm. He tends to, this is all recent late. We'll talk about, we're talking about past Leighton later, I guess. But Leighton right now is interesting things. He's a dangerous floater for sure, like definition of that. But he is very inconsistent and a, actually a really nervous, bad closer for the most part. Well, off of one match, you're basically. No, 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 no. A lot of times. He's had a lot of matches where he's really wobbled in late stages and blown some wins he should have had. Well, when, you want, when you're a guy who makes it so apparent, abundantly clear that he wants to win. Yeah. Like he wants to win. Yeah, that's when the nerves set in. Yeah. No, and I think it's, and I asked him about this a little bit at the U.S. Open after he blew his match against usually there this year. It just, it's like the opposite of the 
13-year-old Chinese gymnast, gymnast theory. I mean, when you're young and fearless, things are easy. But Leighton Hewitt is the opposite and has had so many missed chances in his career. I mean, think of it this way. Leighton Hewitt made his most recent Grand Slam final in 2005. And Andy Roddick made several Grand Slam finals after that. And has been retired for a while. Marat Safin won a Grand Slam has been gone from the game for a while. And he won that Grand Slam final over Leighton Hewitt, who's still going at it. Roddick won his most recent Grand Slam after Leighton Hewitt's most recent Grand Slam and Roddick's gone. I mean, there's just these things. He's had all these chances and really kept going at it. On some level, you wonder what he's still doing, you know, staying on this treadmill. If he doesn't know what to what to do when he gets off of it or what, I don't know. It's just a lot going on with Leighton. And in a lot of ways, it is cool that he keeps doing it, especially this U.S. Open, I thought was really pretty overwhelmingly positive. But overall, I just sort of wonder, like, if he's afraid of the transition to civilian life or something. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is, I mean, obviously, when you look back on Leighton's career, and he was, he's going to be most likely most known for just kind of his competitiveness and his fire. And that's just innate within him. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like it goes out. You know, I mean, he's competing as hard today as he did, you know, back in 2001. Mm -hmm. But and, and maybe that's really why, you know, he's struggling to kind of walk away. Because like, whereas other players, like the fire just kind of went out to the extent that a fire existed. Yeah. <laughs> With Leighton, it's still burning. It's just that the the body and the mind are, are just completely different the stage of his life than than when he was he was you know number one but and, and that's a hard you know I mean it's a hard decision to make and part of it is like having to fly all over the place to like kind of figure out what was wrong with his foot and get the right surgery and all that sort of stuff and everything that he's done to his body to get it into a, a shape where he could play then you kind of got to play yeah. right like like you can't just be like eh never mind so yeah but I mean it's hard because he's just not a player that when I was kind of watching the sport when I was younger like he wasn't really a player that like I had really connected with in any way. He was very, very abrasive when he was yeah. younger, very brash, very abrasive. He had obviously, in a sense, did not do him a whole lot of favors here in the U.S. with James Blake and the linesman at the U.S. Right. Open back in 2001, I believe. That was the year he went on to win the tournament and Blake was very good diffusing that. And I actually heard Darren Cahill say at some point during the U.S. Open when Blake was retiring that he thinks that if Blake hadn't handled that as sort of high road as he had at that time then Leighton probably would have not won the U.S. Open that year because it would have just totally derailed him and yeah you know sort of broken him for that tournament but you know, Leighton won the 01 U.S. Open and then the 02 Wimbledon beating not Bandian in the final he had a pretty if I remember correctly he had a pretty easy draw at Wimbledon in 2002 and then the sort of things fell apart for him pretty emphatically from 2003 on in terms of being a top contender when he lost first round Wimbledon to Ivo Karlovic, who was a qualifier, ranked like outside top 200 at that point. And Federer won that tournament. And from then on, he was just totally never broke through Federer at a big tournament ever again. And Federer took all his spot. And same with Roddick, to a lesser extent. But Leighton really got shut down by Federer in a big way. He got bageled twice by him in the 04 US Open final and just sort of never seemed like he was going to get past that and seemed a little bit resigned to it honestly at the time yeah quite possibly I mean I think that Leighton is also one of those players that I always use as an example of when people because I I'm very conscious I guess of kind of like this is gonna sound wrong I'm very conscious of size like when a player is just smaller <laughs> and I know I know I know but I was <laughs> just gonna say <laughs> ha 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 12 years old that was funny but yeah no like when a player is smaller and plays kind of a more grinding game and a more of a counter punching game and that sort of but has that sort of physique I just don't I'm never confident they can do that over the course of the long haul that that body is going to break down and it's just not a game style that's going to work over the long you know course of a season or a career
career or whatever. And Leighton, I think, was always kind of a player that I kind of looked at as as kind of being the epitome of that, of the kind of modern era of a guy who had the fight and the power and the shots and all these sorts of things. But you just can't play that way. It was remarkable. For like, yeah. you know, for a long time. It was it really, we talk about people maximizing their talent and people say it in David Ferrer in a very sort of condescending way when talking about him for the most part. But it was true for Leighton. I mean, Leighton got much bigger results out of similar physical endowments. Uh, to use more 12-year-old worthy words, he uh, won two Grand Slams and finished two different years number one, if I'm not mistaken. And that's huge. And he did that all with sort of power of will, but also early on in his career, a lack of surrender to the top guys, which someone like a Ferrer probably has to some extent. Leighton was a very early bloomer in his career, and there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. He won his first title when he was 16 or 15, I believe. 16, I think, in Adelaide, his hometown. And uh, yeah, it's, we talked about it before. Some players peak early, some peak later. He definitely peaked early. And yeah, that's, that's fine. It doesn't make the rest of his career a failure per se. It's just interesting that he's still here when some people are not. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the big thing is, you know, he's also going to be one of those players that falls into that category of like almost being cursed by an early peak. Everyone's always celebrated when you have like success late in your career. When you have success early in your career and you're kind of considered a prodigy in one way or another and you can't replicate that or maintain it over the course of your career, like somehow you get knocked for it even if like you finish with the same accomplishments as somebody else yeah right like you know like i always look at it like a like you look at like an ivanovich or skiavoni skiavoni isn't going to end her career as like a punchline but ivanovich might even if they both end with the same number of slams sure yeah it's kind of it's just kind of bad luck (laughs) not bad luck i mean it's yay you want to slam like that's good yeah there are different ways to do it yeah yeah he's got a perfectly good life and then you know he's got two great kids and, and wife and all that sort of stuff but you know it'll it'll be interesting to kind of see what kind of the you know Leighton Hewitt career retrospective will look like so there's a question retrospect retrospective wise if you had a vote would you put Leighton Hewitt in the hall of fame oh I mean if I had to vote I would say no okay well I would definitely mm-hmm. FYI, I, I think I would just because youngest the, to be number one was isn't that right? Youngest number one numbers, finished two different yeah. years. Number one won two slams. I think made two other slam finals. That's pretty solid. I think and also the constant effort and desire and compete level was there where he stayed relevant. Comparing him to someone who has a very similar stat line except for the ranking part in Kuznetsova, I feel like Hewitt's legacy should be more impressive than Kuznetsova, assuming Kuznetsova never wins any more slams. That's fair. No, that's definitely so. true. That's definitely true. I, I think that I get stuck in kind of my mentality. Like, I personally think that the Hall of Fame criteria is, like, way too lax. So, like, I generally tend to flip the needle the other way. Right. No. I'm like, no, like, you can't get in here. It's lax but I think you're inducting right. people over years. It's sort of, sort of their curse. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think Leighton will be remembered with admiration and definitely a bit of a cantankerous guy sometimes. Rough around the edges and whatnot. But I think in the locker room, I think he gets a lot of respect for being someone who hasn't quit. And it's interesting to see him in an in Australian context along with Tomic. Like those two people are like on the same Davis Cup team and have to coexist. And it, it, it makes me laugh. It is amusing. And I do think they're, and I do think it is impressive for him to be up to 57 and really be earning his spots in these tournaments right now. Because in 2012, oh my he God, was king he, of wild cards. He got the calendar golden slam of wild cards which will never be duplicated i don't think it was remarkable it was a remarkable 
amount of handouts. Maybe Roger. <laughs> Roger in 2016. <laughs> could Roger get the calendar? Well, he would know because I don't think Roger's going to be ranked outside 100. of the. Yeah, exactly. I don't think Roger's going to be ranked outside the top 100. That was the thing. He was ranked outside the top 100 for like the whole year. He got mm-hmm. all these wild cards and still needed one to the U.S. Open. Like, what is that? Yeah. So. Anyway, and part of it was that he gets the Australian reciprocal wild cards, and so he was taking them away from, like, younger players. Just like, nope, Rusty's got to get back out there. Sorry, James Duckworth and Matt Ebden. Yeah, sorry. James Duckworth, actually, I think, could be, like, a semi-thing one day, aside. I think he'd be, like, I mean, he could be, like, top 50, Duckworth. Nah, anyway, that's Leighton Hewitt, number 57, as well as Chanel Skeppers, number 78, on this edition, this lopsided edition of Take a Number. So thanks, guys, for listening once again. As always, to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can also follow, like us on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash NCR podcast. And you can also subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you do that, or even if you don't, we love it if you left a rating there for us on a review on iTunes. Uh, much appreciated. And yeah, as always, thanks for listening guys thanks y'all usa us no can't do it can't do it sounded wrong it just it makes me feel so uncomfortable we, we need, I, yeah we'll have you talk through those issues and maybe I, I have a lot i have to i have a lot i have a lot going on on this on this issue it's going to take a few episodes for me to get it out well we have the whole off season here this is what this is the off season's for fixing Very problems true. getting ready by hotman cup 2014 i want you to be out there chanting except for your for you know your journalists and <laughs> I was like, mm. well, <laughs> here's not. the thing, because we know that when it comes to Davis Cup in February, the Brits are not going to be not cheering. Put it that way. Well, the Brits always cheer. Yeah. For Murray, they do. I mean, that's not you know a secret, but that doesn't make it. I mean, I don't, I don't think any of us really do that. No. It, for the Americans, we're almost like the opposite. Yeah, I think I think we're like so conscious of it where we're just like, oh, they're horrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they embarrass me. <laughs> like, you know, it is there is a bit of overcompensation, I suppose. Damn it, query. Yeah. Perfect. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So on that <laughs> note, thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you again next week. Bye. See ya. American heart and it's time we stay